what are we doing here? Um, I was going to title the sermon, um, uh, Where Do We Go From Here? But I thought that would be even more despondent. Um, so what are we doing here? Uh, well, I hope you're here because you love the Lord and you want to worship or that you are seeking for, you seek, you're seeking something from the Lord and um, you hope that you find it. And I think that you will. Um, but uh, what are we doing here? I think we'll figure out why the message is uh, called that in a little while. Um, maybe another question to ask to, to kind of close out this year is how did we get here? Um, through many dangerous tools and snares, right? Uh, we, uh, we got here um, through a lot of ups and downs, but the, the good news is, is we made it here, right? I mean, that's one way to spin things, um, but that's my job. Uh, we, we got here, um, and uh, for better or for worse, we've arrived the last Sunday of 2020, and I'm thankful to be able to spend it with you all. Hope you have a Bible. If you do, um, open up to Romans 5 and put a marker over at 1 Kings 18. We're going to read Romans 5, uh, really first thing here in a minute, and then we're going to turn over to Kings in a little while. Um, I believe that these two texts really go hand in hand, and I I really believe that today's message um, has a lot uh, to encourage us, to inspire us, and to equip us uh, for what's ahead. Now, I'll be honest with you, um, one of the most challenging messages for me every year is the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's. Sometimes it works out where Christmas is right on Sunday and then New Year's is the next one, but there's every once in a while, most years actually, uh, there's a, a Sunday between Christmas and New Year's, um, and uh, it, it's really kind of hard for me to kind of get prepared for it, not just because I'm distracted and busy with Christmas coming up to the, to, coming up to the Sunday. That's one reason, uh, but, but it really, um, it kind of feels like a lame duck Sunday, if you will, um, if that makes sense. Kind of like how politicians, they have a kind of a, a, you know, a window of time when their term is up or they didn't get reelected and they're kind of just waiting to get replaced, but, you know, they're just kind of, you know, hanging out and making some money, uh, which wouldn't be a bad thing, right? Uh, but, uh, or, you know, like when in school, when you take your exams and you have two weeks to go back to school and you're thinking, why am I even going? And your teachers don't even know why you're there, but you got to go because somebody says you need to. Um, so this is kind of like that Sunday, this last week of the year between Christmas and New Year's, this space between, it's kind of dull. Uh, maybe you love it so I hope I you know maybe but I don't know what that says about you but I I, I always I don't mind it it's just kind of difficult from a pastoral perspective um you know we build up to Christmas with message after message and it's all climaxes with the celebration of Jesus' birth and how it changes everything now nothing ever can measure up to it and then you got to come back to church the next Sunday and think you know are you going to still talk about Christmas people are kind of over that you know what do you do and um thankfully there's somebody bigger in charge of all this that, that helps me out with it but uh you know you're looking forward to New Year's and you know we're going to start the new year off with a fresh vision and perspective and, and I'll be honest I'm kind of at loss for words as to what to say in the space between and, and you might think I never lose my words but sometimes it happens um, but but not this year uh, this year I've got plenty to say which good news for y'all right uh, but this year I'm thankful uh, for the space between because it's a sign that we've made it uh, we against the odds and the challenges here we are um, about to close out a very challenging year. What we face this year makes having an extra Sunday between Christmas and New Year's really a great opportunity to look back and consider how we got here and maybe marvel that we got here in general and and really just be amazed that we've come through what we did. Now, there are a few things that I think we ought to give particular attention to and appreciation for on this Sunday. And, uh, you know, if you're a believer, you'll agree with me. If you're not a believer, I think this is some things you should pay attention to because God has been involved in your life, whether you know it or not. And I think the fact that you've made it here or you're watching today, that that confirms that hopefully to you, but I, I know it does to me. A few things that we should give attention to and we need to be appreciative for this Sunday is all throughout this year, we have witnessed that we have a sovereign God. 
We have a God who is in control. No matter what we did not expect, we didn't know what was coming, we didn't know what was going to happen next or what's going to you know, come out of all this, but God did. You and I can rest knowing that we have a sovereign God. Sovereign's a big word for He is in control. He knows what's going to happen, and it's on His watch when it's going to happen. He has His hands on the wheel. He's not hands off. He's not standoffish. He didn't just spin the earth into existence and take a break for a couple thousand years. He is sovereign. He reigns over the earth, and He is very interested and very hands-on with everything that happens. He's working things toward a very specific purpose. You may question why things happen and why he would let certain things happen, but be encouraged by the fact that he is sovereign. We wouldn't have made it here if he wasn't. We also have a shepherding Savior, as in Jesus Christ, our Savior, is the good shepherd. He laid his life down for us to prove it 2,000 years ago. He rose again, and he's been shepherding us from heaven ever since. Through his sustaining spirit, the Savior and the Spirit have guided us and been with us, shepherding us through the hills and through the valleys, and sustaining us when we felt like we were going to run out of life itself. So when I look back at 2020, we see, and I think you can see, that we've had a God who has been expressed in this triune way, uh, in this fashion that we've seen here. I think it's pretty clear that God has shown his control. We have felt the comfort of Jesus, and we have been counseled and led by the Holy Spirit. That's for sure. I think the perfect text to frame and help us review a year like this is from Romans 5. Now, what we're going to do is different than normal. We're going to open up and we're going to read through these verses and talk about this passage. And then we're going to turn to an Old Testament passage that I think shows us in real time someone figuring this out. So we're going to really get the end of the message up front and kind of get the moral of the story before we read the story, if that makes sense. This is to help us understand what I, what I think we should feel about this year, how I think we should feel about this year. But if you're not certain or if you aren't ready to get be there yet, Hopefully the story will show us all how we can come to this place that, that Paul, when he wrote Romans, was clearly at, uh, a place of confidence, a place of great conviction about the sovereign God, the shepherding Savior, and the sustaining spirit that he had been led and taken care of uh, by. So would you follow along with me, Romans 5, the first four verses, what we'll read. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we also glory or we also rejoice in tribulations or trials, knowing that. Now, you might not be able to say that you know this, but Paul knew this, and I think we should pay attention. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, as in the trial causes within us a, pers a persevering or a patience and enduring spirit. The trial produced endurance and patience and perseverance, and perseverance produced a character, as in it increased or it, it improved our character, our soul. And our character being improved brought us hope. So we have trials that led to perseverance, perseverance that led to character being improved, character that led to our hope being focused on the real and on the right thing. I love how Paul starts this passage off. He says, therefore, as in we know this, 
Now, again, you might not be there yet, but Paul was. And we can go into all the Paul face, we will in a little bit. Paul, based on all that he's been going through, what he's learned, he says, I can confidently say that I have faith, and because I have faith, I have peace. And because I have peace, whatever's going to come at me, let it come. Because God is going to be with me, and that's all that matters. Now, here's the thing about faith. You may say, well, I don't know about, you know, I have faith, but my faith is weak. And that's okay to admit that or if you think that your faith is weak. But listen, your faith may be weak, but faith in Jesus Christ is as strong as it can be because you're putting faith on someone who defeated death, who rules from heaven, and is in control. So when you put your faith in this God, the sovereign, shepherding, sustaining God, you don't have to worry whether or not you're strong enough because he's plenty strong. You may be weak, and that's okay, but he is strong. So our faith can handle anything, anything, anything. People say, I lost faith. Listen, you might have lost you know, a, a conviction. You might have lost understanding, but your faith can't be lost because your faith is in God who has you in his hand. We look at it from us to God, but God looks at it from us to him, and he has us taken care of. Now, our faith can handle anything. It's not fragile. It's focused on God. Romans 5, 2 there tells us, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What is Paul saying? That we believe that what we're going through is for God's glory. That yeah, there's a lot of the things we would like for it to be for. We hope that we can make some money. We hope we can get healthy. We hope we can get through this with some things going our way. But we as Christians have a collective agreement that everything we go through, everything we do, it's all about God's glory ultimately and above everything else. So we rejoice knowing that what we have been through has been for the glory of God. And we may still have some questions, but we can agree on that or we should agree on that. The glory of our God can be seen and is evident in his sovereignty, his shepherding, and his sustaining guidance and attendance. So we rejoice knowing that we have beheld the greater and lasting glory of God. So you may not be happy about everything we face this year, but Paul is saying we should rejoice knowing we have witnessed God's glory being made or God's glory being unfolded. God's glory, his fame, his everlasting renown greater and lasting compared to this fleeting and lesser glory that was 2020. This means we rejoice as we look back on 2020, as unideal as it may have been, as challenging as it may have been, because in its dimness or outright darkness, it actually provided a backdrop for God's glory to stand out even greater, uh, with even greater brightness and even greater brilliance. Now, Listen to what Paul says in these next few verses. You may not agree with him, but he says it with confidence and conviction and clarity. He says, we don't all only rejoice knowing that it's all being done for God's glory, but we also rejoice knowing that it's being done for our good. Because even the trials that we face are producing something. They're producing perseverance. Now that word perseverance, literally the Greek word, means remaining. It means that everything else may fall, everything else may, may go away, but something is going to remain. And Paul is saying that we will have perseverance through the trial. And the trial is creating within us a persevering or an enduring spirit, as in we will remain even if we lose everything else. 
And what, are, what is being gained for us? It's our character. That word character literally means something that's being refined, something that's mean, something that proven, has been proven as a result, tested and tried. A superior product has come in on the other side of the assembly line. The hope there speaks of being reminded our expectations have been solidified. As in we've been given confirmation that the best is still yet to come. Directly buoyed by the trial. So as we look back, we rejoice. Knowing that our perseverance through the year has been for our good. The fact that we've arrived at the end means that we've pressed through challenging circumstances. And that offers us growth and a better future as a result. Now I want you to think about it. What remains or what has been proven to 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 stand the test of time this year i know two things that i've become even more of of a believer in the universal and the ever applicable gospel that what we've learned this year is the gospel is still the best news we can tell and the best news you can hear that the hope of Jesus Christ is the answer for the greatest need of our heart. That what remains this year is our world is lost in searching for answers and searching for something that will last beyond this short life. And we have learned the gospel is the answer. We've also learned that the church is essential and has endured through things that many thought it might not last through. The local church that Jesus said, I'm going to build and hell won't stop it. We worried about whether it would make it through. But we've learned the church endures and is as important as ever. Think about what has been refined this year. We've been refined. We have experienced providential and purposeful spiritual growth. That's why the song says, and book that James says, and Paul says, we rejoice at the trial because we would not trade the result for anything. I know you might not would have signed up for it, but would you trade the spiritual growth you've experienced? Would you want to go back and undo that growth? No, I hope you wouldn't say that because the growth is priceless. The refining process of this year has resulted in you and I being closer to God, or it can result in you and I being closer to God, and that is worth the trial. Think about what we've been reminded of this year, a lot. We've been reminded that earth has fallen. There's no fixing it. It's broken. It's sinful. It's rotting. It needs a restoration. We've been reminded that earth has fallen, that heaven is forever. Our eternal destination is heaven, that one day we'll come down to earth and restore all things. But in the meanwhile, we've been reminded that Jesus is redeeming all things for his glory, that while this earth continues to spin, he is using everything for his glory and to build his kingdom, and that includes you. So I know that was sort of rapid fire, but how does that make you feel? as you think back to 2020. Now, I didn't go through all the other stuff we went through this year, but it's not really important as this stuff is. Now, maybe you've already thought about all these things and already given God thanks and reflected on how he's been good to you this year, how he's been good to us this year. Maybe you're just beginning to look back and you're having a hard time, to be honest, finding anything good about what you've been through. And and a lot of us, maybe you're just indifferent. Maybe you're thinking there's no way to make sense out of what has happened and it's just all, you know, circumstances and happenstance. And as many, uh, you know, there may be that some that are bitter, confused about everything that has took, taken place. And here's what I know and why I choose to take this text from Romans seriously. You might not want to or might not think that it's important or serious, but I, I take it seriously for this reason. This is the year, for a few more days, we are in the year 2000. 
and 20. And I hold in my hands a book that contains a lot of books, a bigger book that contains a lot of little books, letters, uh, tracts that were written. The book of Romans was written in 57 AD. So that's 1,953 years ago. And here we are, all those years later, holding a book. Now, again, that, you, you know, people find old books all the time. We think 2020 has been the worst year ever, but it's just one out of 1,953 over which Romans 5 has been proclaiming this truth. Not to mention the rest of the Bible. All of it has been written, was written between uh, 1,900 years ago and 3,000 years ago. And this book, the books inside of it, these words have been inspiring people and have been a guiding light to people in darkness across all those years. So you know why I take this book seriously and why I believe it's going to help us and why it's inspiring to us is because for thousands of years, people have picked up a, a fragment of this book, a page of this book, the whole copy like we have, and they have found light in their darkness. In the 6th century B.C., when the Jews were exiled to Babylon and to Persia, they clung to the words, an unfinished book even, they clung to the words of the prophets. Christians under Roman persecution for hundreds of years clung to these words, fed the lions, beheaded, crucified, made a sport out of their execution. They clung to these words. As the Black Death and tyrannical regimes ruled the Middle Ages, people clung to these words. As 50% of the European population died off, people clung to these words. As the church fell under pagan and political influence that choked out the truth, the remnant of believers clung to these words, vowing to reform it as much as they could while remaining mere pilgrims on this earth. As the world expanded and made progress, all the while regressing, as it upheld long-condemned institutions, people clung to these words. As the world burnt under two world wars, killing over a hundred million people, and countless examples of genocide from Germany to Turkey to Rwanda over the past hundred years, and as communist and anti-Christian regimes have oppressed believers, people have clung to these words. As the world has gotten too enlightened in postmodern rejecting truth and scriptural hell convictions, people cling to these words. So in the aftermath of 2020, we too fall in line and we cling to these words, to this book, to this truth, because we know that our little episode of panic is just another chapter in the redemption story as earth's brokenness is meeting and being met with resurrection hope. You may think the words are too good to be true, but they are so very true, so very good, but only if we embrace them and apply them and seek their realization in our lives. I think it's imperative that we take these next few days to reflect on what we've learned this year, what we've gained this year, that we recall that God has indeed been sovereign. Jesus has indeed been a good shepherd. The Spirit has sustained us through it all. We should renew our trust in the gospel and commitment to the church because they've proven timeless and priceless once more. We should review the character growth that God has brought and sought to make in us and continues to make in us. 
We must remember what has been cemented as our one and only hope. How this earth is indeed fallen. God's kingdom is indeed rising. Heaven is our future and only through Jesus can we be prepared to enjoy it and all that is to come. You see, we don't know what 2021 has in store, but if we don't rightly understand what this year has offered us and wants to say to us, we will be woefully unprepared for what's next. And maybe that's why we weren't prepared for what came this year. One thing I've always been a habit of teaching and preaching is on suffering and hardships because the Bible talks so much about this subject. It also teaches how we must properly frame even our successes as part of God's greater will, being ready to accept whatever he brings next so that we would learn to live by him, not by them, the good or the bad. So here's what I want to do before we end this year, and I want to close our time with a brief look at someone I think we can all relate to, um, which is Elijah the prophet. Elijah the prophet. Now, Elijah the prophet lived um, about 900 or so, uh, or about 900 or so B.C., um, 800 or so B.C. Um, Elijah is very famous for his bold and his brash spirit. And the story we're going to jump into, he has been going through an up-and-down season of life. Uh, there has been a time of famine and drought in the land um, of Israel during which he grew very close to God. Um, God actually said through this man that he was going to use, he was going to test and reform Israel, and the nation fell into pagan idol worship during this time, and its heart was being pulled in multiple directions. Politics said one thing, pop culture said another thing. God was saying, return to me, don't straddle the fence any longer because the full blessing of God would only come from full devotion to him. Now, this was a three-year-long dilemma that really climaxed and concluded with the prophet of God having a standoff with the prophets of politics and culture. Now, there's a powerful moment where the nation has assembled at the base of Mount Carmel. He repairs an altar, Elijah does, that has been abandoned by the nation. Think of it as an ancient gathering place, an ancient outdoor assembly, a place where people at one time came together week after week for worship, more than that even. Now, there used to be dozens or more of these throughout Judah and Israel at the base of the mountains and groves, places unique natural beauty and wonder were chosen, but they had largely been left to die. And the funny thing is, as these places of worship were left to die, so was the nation. Funny how that works. But the drought and the famine brought the nation a second chance. It brought the nation of Israel back to its knees, back towards God. Elijah had the national attention, and he called the people to return to God. And if you turn back to 1 Kings if you look at chapter 18, I want to begin reading or read a few verses from chapter 18, verse 30. Elijah's on the mountaintop. Everybody in the nation has come to see who is going to win, the prophets of Baal or the prophets of God or the prophet of God. All these prophets of Baal that speak for pop culture, they speak for politics, they speak for what the people are living in and how they're seeing the world. And you got this one guy all by himself claiming this old, outdated God who nobody's heard from in years, that he's the actual one that people should serve and should trust in. So these crowds come together around Elijah who is given his chance to speak. And the prophets of Baal have already done their thing. They've already impressed everybody and already told everybody why they should, we should believe them. Elijah comes up and he repairs an altar that had been used years before. In verse 30 of 18, he says, come near to me. So all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down, an altar that had been used by Joshua years and years before. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel shall be your name. 
And Elijah tells them their history, that we are Israel because of what God did through the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he brought us into this land under Moses and Joshua. And this was once a site of worship, and it's been abandoned, but we can rebuild it. He says, this, then with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord and had made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two saves of seed. So Elijah is going to demonstrate, or he is going to call on God to demonstrate how he is in control and how his power and his glory is greater than anybody else or any other thing. So in a splendid demonstration of his power, God shows up, proves his superiority, um, uh, superiority over the pagan gods and brings fire down from heaven to the top it off. He then sends rain for the first time in three and a half years. So the story goes, Elijah left the mountain filled with God's fire, refreshed by heaven's showers, re relieved and revived, supposing that all the bad was behind him. So he, he does this show, he preaches the best sermon in his life, God shows up with the spirit so thick and powerful people could not even stand near it. Clearly Elijah was proven right, the pagans were proven wrong, clearly the nation was going to be re revived and going to re repent and turn back to God. There was no way they wouldn't. The pagan cult was embarrassed, humiliated, disbanded. Their influence was ruined. The drought was over. The food supply was replenished. A possible revival was on the horizon. The only question was the nation was still under control of an ungodly king and queen, Ahab and Jezebel. Now listen, this is very important context for the story. Elijah expected a revolt to take place that would overthrow King Ahab. Now you have to understand... King Ahab was not a descendant, he, he and his father were not in a kingly descendant or a kingly line. That the nation of Israel had been founded under King Jeroboam, or, or King Jeroboam and his descendants um, ruled the throne for many, many decades and many, 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 many years. But there was a coup in the military and a guy named Omri overthrew the king at the time and made himself king. So Omri and Ahab were not part of Israel's dynasty and they kind of pushed their way in and they introduced this idol worship to Israel. So now that this idol worship had been condemned, now that the people saw that Baal was not really a god and had not their interest in mind, now Elijah expected that Ahab would be moved, moved aside and that the rightful kings of Israel would be back in power and that the nation could recover. So Elijah runs through the nation expecting a revolution and rebellion against Ahab, but nobody joins him. In fact, the nation regresses to the mean and signals full support of Ahab and renounces what Elijah did to Jezebel's prophets. As you could imagine, Elijah is devastated and deflated. He is completely demoralized. I mean, he's running through the city saying, let's go, guys, let's overthrow the king, let's restore godliness to Israel, and nobody budges. You would think, why wouldn't they? I mean, they had every reason to. So Elijah goes from running with boldness and resurrected hope to running away in fear and resignation. Just like that, he goes from being on top of the mountain to being completely defeated. Have you been there? Elijah thought he was at the end of the trial, but turns out the true trial was just beginning. He had proven faithful when he was on the offense, but now he was on the defense and he had to protect what, he had, been, what had been proven true. Just hadn't taken off. Sometimes when we feel like we're on the upswing, we can push against the tide, can't we? We're almost to the top, and we kind of find an extra gear. The adrenaline wears off, though, when we find out we haven't advanced as far as we expected. We realize that all that effort we made didn't really move the needle. And can't you get discouraged when that happens? Don't you get discouraged? Truth be told, there's still work to do, but sometimes we just get tired, and the results are slow to come. Even if we've seen progress or there has been progress, we just can't chart it. 
and we feel like giving up. Now, it's in that story that we're going to drop into because while I don't know what 2021 holds for us, I know that we've pushed through a lot this year. And we feel like, or we at least we should feel like, or we feel like we should at least be at the threshold of a breakthrough or something being better. But we don't know when the effects will actually come. You see, we've heard about the clouds that contain blessings, but we've yet to see them or feel them for ourselves. That's kind of where we're at. Truth be told, maybe that's where we're at a lot of times in life. We hear a lot about how there are showers of blessings about to come, and we look for them, we don't see them. We think we see them, but they actually weren't there. It looked like it, but it wasn't. And we haven't felt a thing. Maybe we boldly proclaimed a time or two that victory is a sure thing, but now we're starting to be less convinced and we're starting to doubt it internally. I don't know if there's a parallel between Elijah as he faced year four of a trial around 860 B.C. and what we face as 2020 turns to 2021, but I think there's something we can learn from his experience. So read with me, if you will, or follow along with me. 1 Kings 19, listen to this next chapter of Elijah's life. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So that the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow at this time. So I'm still going to kill you, Elijah. Nothing has changed. I'm still in power. I've still got more money and more men than you. Nothing is going to stop me from continuing to have this reign of terror. Elijah, I know you thought you had victory in sights. But you can go ahead and say goodbye to that. So when he saw that, when he read the message, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So he leaves the country. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came down and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. It is enough, he said. Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. That's a big change from chapter 18. He's on the mountain. He's screaming and fire and thunder and lightning are falling and he's preaching and he's bold and he's brave and he's brash. And he's going to take the country back. And now he's curled up under a tree praying to die. And he didn't want nobody to see him like this. Then as he lay and slept under the broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. He looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals, a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back, and the second time touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went into the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights, as far as Horeb, or Sinai, the mountain of God. You know, the Bible tells us that Elijah was a lot like us, or that we're a lot like him. He had a lot of passion, a lot of zeal. He would get amped up about things. His faith, and he had confidence in advance that when it seems as if there was a delay, God was going to make a way. But Elijah, being like us, also got frustrated when things didn't go as he thought they would or things didn't change as quickly as he wanted them to. He had to learn patience. He had to learn how to endure. And here's what we know from his story. If we don't endure... If we don't persevere, if we don't push through, we won't experience or enjoy what God has in store for us on the other side. The glory of God is not some instantaneous temporary dose of satisfaction. It's an extended release over the time process of joy. And now more than ever, we have a short attention span. We have an appetite for fast food. It's hard to accept this. 
But what we need is often doled out in a more fulfilling, sustaining fashion. We're easily fooled by this world. We have false hope, which always disappoints. Every generation bandages up the most blatant wounds of this world and creates a false sense of security from the fallen nature that yet persists. Elijah's generation was no different. They clung to the idea that they had cured this fallen planet. They were no longer strangers, but they were permanent residents. And we forget that this world is not our forever home. We forget that God is patient with it so he can save more and he's using us to assist in that. And for that reason, I believe years like 2020 must come to pass. Because otherwise we'd forget the truth, we'd resist it even. Maybe you're feeling like Elijah today. Maybe you're worried you will be feeling like Elijah as the new year begins. You want to be optimistic and bold and fearless, but you've got some slight trepidation about that. Consider the range of emotions that Elijah goes through in this story. Again, look at verse 4. He says, It is enough, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Now, what does that mean? Elijah is coming to terms that his generation might not change the world like he thought they could or they should. See, we always want to think that our generation will be the trailblazers, that there's nothing wrong with goals, and there's nothing wrong with goals or dreams, but accomplishing those marks are not what makes our life successful or worthy. And that's hard to hear. That's hard to accept, isn't it? Elijah had put all this pressure on him, expectations on himself, and he was crumbling beneath them. He wanted to bring the nation back to the days of David and the days of Moses. He wanted to be the one that was responsible for that. He wanted to see the nation prosperous and successful and blessed. He overloaded himself with expectations that he couldn't handle. And that's why God says in verse 7, the journey is too great for you. Elijah, you've put too much on your shoulders. I think God wants us to consider a few things here. I think first off, he wants us to consider the inspiration behind our expectations. Because every one of us came into this year, and we have in general in our lives, we have expectations for ourselves, don't we? But we got to ask a question, are those expectations of God or this world? Are the expectations we have for ourselves, are they rooted in Scripture or are they rooted in society? Have we just brought things on our shoulders that we cannot bear? See, we've focused on expectations this world inspires, some measure of success, some idea of making it, having, obtaining, measuring up. We will feel inferior and depressed when we fail to meet them. And the enemy rubs his hands together because that's his goal. He's good at it, isn't he? You see, God's expectations, they will not burden or break us. They will bless and they will better us. But God's expectations are spiritual. They don't, they're regarding our character and their relationships based. They're not about the size, but about the spirit. You see, God's expectations are not derailed by trials, but rather fulfilled and fueled by them. You see, Elijah thought, we'll never make it now. Because he was looking at the external circumstances and surroundings. In this moment, God comes to minister to him to give him rest. Elijah didn't realize how badly he needed rest. Maybe you don't. How important reflecting on how God had been sustaining him through this trial and how God was working still yet in the trial. Elijah's restored, but, God, but he does not acknowledge God and he does not realize that God was doing all this. He makes a very strange journey. He goes all the way to Mount Sinai, trekking across the desert for over a month. Why would he do that? What was he doing? Well, the funny thing is, God had a similar question for him in verse 9. 
he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Why did you come all the way here? You think I'm stuck behind some holy mountain? 40 days and nights away from your home? Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah's incredulous. Of course, God, you should know what I'm doing here. And he makes a case to God. I have been very zealous for you, for the Lord, God of hosts, for the children of Israel. They've forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Listen, God, I'm here because there's nobody else like me. The world is not going to change, and God, I think you owe me something. An explanation, some sort of insight into what's going on, maybe a ticket out of here. Elijah heard the stories of Moses on the mountain, the revelation he received, the wonders he saw, how he was taken to a heaven in a cloud. Elijah's thinking, God, I'm too good for what this world has given me. I've served you. I've obeyed you. The world isn't giving me anything I think I deserve in return. Have you ever been there? So Elijah goes to God and says, listen, either show me something to make sense of this or take me to heaven. I don't deserve another year like this. And what is God's response to Elijah? What are you doing here? And Elijah would think, well, that's my question. I'm looking for answers. Maybe you're looking for answers. Maybe that's why you're here. Look at verse 11. And then he says, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. He says, I've seen this movie before, Elijah. I know what Moses did. You want to do the same thing he did. So go out and stand on the mountain. You might find that same cleft of the rock, but don't stand behind the cleft. Behold, the Lord passed by. Great and strong winds were in the mountains and broke the rocks and tore the mountains, uh, broke the rocks to pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, and the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a still, small voice. And so it was when Elijah heard it. Now, this is good. He wraps his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. You know why he wrapped his face in the mantle? Because he was expected to be met with the glory of God like Moses. Remember when Moses had to put the veil on his face? Because he couldn't stand to see the light. So Elijah, I don't have a veil, he wraps his face in this scarf. Thinking, well, I'm about to see something so bright, I cannot contain it or stand it. And he walks out. And I think God is laughing. I don't know. Maybe he wasn't. But I think this is kind of funny to God. Suddenly, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? I mean, you want fireworks and wind and earthquakes? I can give you all you want. But come on, Elijah. Take that silly thing off your face. What are you doing here? And Elijah says, Well, I guess you didn't hear me the first time. <clears throat> I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. God, you know why I'm doing here, what I'm doing here. And I'm waiting for you to tell me something that's going to make me want to you know, go back to the world and live. And if you can't, hey, just take me on. God says, Elijah, Elijah. You've come all this way chasing some spectacle on the mountain as if I'm not with you wherever you are, as if I'm not always working even in the valleys. 
I know you thought Mount Carmel would change everything and everyone, but you can't allow the enemy's response to me to determine whether or not I'm working. Of course, this world and Satan rejects God and his work. Would you expect them to accept it? What matters is, are we rejecting and resisting his work also? Because we easily can, can't we? God says, you think there's no use in going forward? You think you're the only one left so that things can't change and it might as well just end? Elijah, I'd rather you trust me, but since you insist that I've somehow let you down, I'll fill you in on what's next. He says in verse 15, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazel as king over Syria. And you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Mahola, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazel, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed in every mouth that has not kissed him. To Baal. Elijah, I'd rather you trust me, but since you insist that I don't know what's going on or I've lost control, listen, I'm about to raise up a new king for Syria who's going to lead to Ahab's demise, and I'm going to replace Ahab, with, and I've already got his successor in line, and oh, by the way, since you're convinced you're the only one left, I've already got your successor in line. Is that what you wanted to hear, Elijah? You're so worried about what's going to happen. I've got it all figured out. And oh, by the way, there are 7,000 people in Israel hiding from persecution, looking for a leader, but you're too busy seeking pity a thousand miles away. What are you doing here, Elijah? Maybe we need to stop worrying so much over what we don't know or think we want to know and call to mind what we do know. I think that's what God was saying to Elijah. Elijah, you of all people should know that God is sovereign and in him we have a shepherding Savior and from him we have a sustaining spirit. Elijah, you of all people should know and be proclaiming that trials you face produce endurance within you. And long after the institutions of man are gone, God and his people will remain secure. Elijah, you of all people should know the trials are meant to create a refined character. You, that you will be reminded that heaven rules and heaven alone should have our trust. Elijah, one day you'll get your chariot ride to heaven, but not today. You've got a life to live. You've got people to love. You've got a God to serve. So Elijah, go back home and live your life. And love the people I've put in your life and serve me. And don't waste another day on this mountain trying to find something that you already know. You see, even with the trials we face, there's no need to look for an escape. Endure, enjoy, and embrace God's plan. Trust Him. That's hard, isn't it? Trust him. He's still got the whole world in his hands. And if we needle him long enough, he might would tell us what he told Elijah. We might not like what he tells us. But I think we can trust him, don't you? 
So I don't know what you're doing here at the end of 2020. I don't know what your frame of mind is, but I hope we have learned like Elijah learned. I hope we have listened to that still small voice today and all year long. And I hope that we won't back down from the challenge. I hope we'll rise up to our calling. So here on this last Sunday of 2020, what are you doing here? Really? What's your spirit like? How's your heart? There may be some people that wear headsets and stand in places like me, and they may offer you all the answers you're looking for and tell you that it's all going to be one way. I don't know what's going to happen. After all we've been through, we must take time to recall and renew and review and remember because we have a tremendous hope. That scripture from Romans earlier ends like this. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So why does hope not disappoint us? Because we have been anointed and appointed by God with a calling in this world. That includes every one of you. You are anointed by God with His Spirit. You are appointed by God. You are called by God. Every one of you. How could we ever be disappointed with that kind of hope? Parents, you can look at your children and see your calling. You can look at your jobs and see your calling. Every one of you can look at your lives and see that God has called you and placed you and appointed you and anointed you. How could you ever be disappointed by that? I know the devil will try, but God has worked his glory in 2020 and he will continue. The question is, have our stories brought attention to God's glory? Have they highlighted and magnified him? This week, take some time to write down what you have went through and what God has done for you. Or just write your story for this year and highlight all that God has done. And spend the rest of your life telling people what God has done. You'll see God at work. You'll see Christ at work. You'll see His Spirit at work. We'll never be disappointed. We'll always feel anointed and appointed for something greater. You know why I believe that? Because God said to Elijah, what are you doing here? God says to me and you, what are you doing here? You know the hope that I've offered the world. All you got to do is trust me. Maybe that's the first step you need to take today. Maybe you need to bow and surrender to God and trust him and put faith in what he's been doing. Maybe you are looking for answers and he may give them to you. But maybe as you look for answers, you also look for him and trust in what you do know in spite of what you don't know because God's glory is told on every page of our story would you pray with me father we love you we thank you for this reminder that you are in control lord it's difficult to accept the things that we don't know that's for sure Lord, every question hasn't been answered today. Every question won't be answered today. But God, we do know and we have been reminded that you are in control, that Jesus is our good shepherd and the Holy Spirit is our sustaining guide. We've been reminded that through the trials we face, you are creating within us an enduring spirit. And that enduring spirit is giving us character and that character is giving us hope in the one true God and the one true kingdom that is to come. 
So, Father, as we look back at our stories for this year, as we look to see all that we have been through, may we highlight all that you have done. And may we spend the rest of our lives magnifying who you are and how good you are to us. So that when the world says, where is your hope? Why do you have hope and faith in that God? We would say, let me just begin to tell you all that God has done. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.